0: Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week I sit down with Professor David Grusky, director of Stanford University's Center on Poverty and Inequality. During our conversation, David talks about the history of income inequality in America, the millions of Americans who are currently living in poverty, and potential public policy that could alter the growth of the US's economic disparity. All right, David. Well, thank you uh, so much for, for taking time to sit down today and uh, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. Uh, we'd love to start by learning about you a little bit and, and your, your background. Um, were, were you always interested in Issues of, of inequality, or was that more of a, a product of, of your time in seeing the uh, the wealth inequality uh, change in in the U.S. Well, always is
1: probably an overstatement. It wasn't like right out of the womb and suddenly uh, an interest in inequality, but but it was relatively early in my in, in my life. Uh, uh, in fact, it it was at a point in time that predated the, the takeoff in income inequality. Um, and and I couldn't therefore attribute my interest mm-hmm. to to the takeoff in income inequality itself. Rather, rather it was uh, an interest that arose early in my career, more out of a, a concern about inequality of opportunity rather than outcome, and in particular that the U.S. isn't delivering on its commitment to, to social mobility in the way that that it should.
0: Mm-hmm. What what were the uh, what what spoke to you about that? What, what what did you learn? What did you read about that uh, indicated to you that the, that those opportunities were were diminishing?
1: Well, I wouldn't say first off that they were diminishing. Nor would I suggest that it necessarily came out of book reading. I, my own life was, I think, an example of 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 privilege reproducing from one generation to the next. My my parents, uh, my father was is a sociologist. Actually, so too was was, was my grandfather. Mm-hmm. So I'm a I'm a third generation sociologist. Uh, and so it wouldn't be surprising that perhaps I might have asked why why that came about.
0: And, and did you grow up in a community where, uh, inequality was, was noticeable in, in your, in your upbringing, or was that something that was a bit, at least at first more abstract?
1: I would say it wasn't that noticeable because even then there was much Economic segregation, and so I lived in neighborhoods that were relatively well off and and i wasn't then exposed as a result to to, to too much inequality hmm. uh, uh, and of course we know we know now that there's rather more economic segregation than was the case then, but but even then it was
0: substantial enough that I would say i wasn't exposed to, to too much inequality hmm. I know now the the issue of income inequality perhaps because we're, we're not far from a presidential election, is getting a little more airtime than it may normally uh, receive. Looking back in history, in U.S. history specifically, was there a golden age of more equitable income distribution in your mind, or has it really never been particularly equitable?
1: Well, certainly, uh, there was a period in in, in U.S. history—one that we now think is as perhaps a departure from the norm—but a period in U.S. history in which there we was substantially less income inequality than there is now. Uh, after the the crash uh, in the nineteen twenties, the market crash, and then and then the depression, and and subsequently the New Deal, we ushered in an era in, in U.S. history in which there was substantially less inequality than was the case before then, mm-hmm. and also uh, certainly
0: than is the case now. Mm-hmm. And when we look back at that time, uh, regarding the New Deal, I mean, you know, the the myth of America or the story that America generally has liked to uh, tell itself is one of there is unlimited opportunity, and provided that you work hard and play by the rules, you'll uh, you'll be fine. And this country will take care of you, and you'll you'll gain prosperity. Was that true prior to the crash? And and if so. What were the specifics of what the country looked like at that time in terms of wealth inequality?
1: Well, so prior to the Great Depression, this is the period you're talking about, yeah, um, there was profound income inequality. Uh, uh, so the top ten percent of the of the country in the income distribution uh, controlled about half of total income. Uh, and we're now right back to that same that same number. Uh, so. So that was a period that was that was uh, uh, quite, with quite extraordinary inequality with respect to social mobility. That is the extent to which uh, those who were advantaged at birth were able to to subsequently do well themselves. Uh, we don't really know as much about long term trend in social mm-hmm. mobility. In fact, one of the great one of the great uh, uh, surprises I think to many is that the U.S. has not done a good job of monitoring trends in social mobility. Uh, and it's something that I've been working on and many others have been working on to try to rectify that situation. But, but we do not know uh, as much about the long-term trend as we should. So it's just harder to say where we stand now relative to then on mobility. Mm-hmm. But it's quite clear that we stand on matters of income inequality
0: at roughly the same very high
1: level as prevailed uh, at that period some, I guess, uh, 80, 80 mm-hmm. or so years ago. Yeah.
0: And when you say, use the, use the phrase social mobility, well, what exactly does that mean and what in your mind would, uh, what would America look like if social mobility were as robust as it likes to think of itself as?
1: So, yeah, what do we mean by social mobility? I, I think the commitment on the part of, of, of many Americans, at least, is that we should have a level playing field in the sense that it ought not matter whether you're born into a rich family or a poor family, uh, uh, no matter what your circumstances are at the point of birth or the circumstances of your family are at the point of birth, everyone ought to have an opportunity to get ahead, uh, and the accident of birth might, shouldn't figure in, in, your, in your opportunities, mm-hmm. in your access to opportunities. That's the ideal. Uh, uh, it's a very distinctive part of, 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 of U.S. history. In fact, if you go back to our early founding documents, you'll see references to the principle of equal, equal opportunity. Uh, and so it's it's deep in the DNA, if you will, of of, of, of the U.S. To, to commit to this type of equality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. One might say it's not so deep in the DNA of the U.S. to commit to equality of outcome, but it mm-hmm. is deep in the DNA of U.S. to commit to equal opportunity. Uh, and so do we live up to that? The evidence is very clear. Like I said, the trend isn't all that clear, mm-hmm. but the evidence with respect to the present day is very clear that, that there are gross departures from, from from equal opportunity. So, for example, if you're born into the Tenth percentile on the income distribution, you're going to make on average about one third of what you'd make if instead you were you were born into into the ninetieth percentile. Oh. So there are big differences across where you start in terms of of, of where you end up. Hmm.
0: And, and I'm sure there are multiple obstacles along the way for for children that are born into that lower uh, fraction of of, of income what what are sort of the major you know two three or four obstacles that that children of those uh, income distributions face is it mostly racial is it mostly just pure economic opportunities by schools not being funded enough what are the the major blocks to uh, those opportunities in in your view there are many uh inequalities of
1: opportunity uh that arise but let me let me, let me list as you said a few of them um, so if you're so unlucky, if you will, as to be born into a into a, into a poor family, uh, that likely means that you're born into into a poor neighborhood, uh, because we have this this concentration of poverty and concentration of advantage. This is the economic segregation to which we earlier re- referred. So you're going to be born into a poor family, which has a set of disadvantages associated with it, and also a poor neighborhood, on, on typically, which also has some disadvantages associated with it. Perhaps most prominently. You're not likely to have high quality primary and secondary schooling we know that quality of schooling varies dramatically by by neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, and so you're you're going to be saddled with schools that aren't as good mm-hmm. um, and that then doesn't position you for college in the way that children born into a middle class neighborhood are, are positioned uh, so it's that unequal access to to quality schooling and 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 then in turn to college that that might be identified as one very very profound set of disadvantages that arise by virtue of being born into a poor Family. Hmm. We can talk about
0: others, but, but that's a big one. Hmm. Is that the biggest one in your view? That probably is the biggest
1: one. Hmm. Um, yeah, we know that the takeoff in income inequality arises to some large degree through through um, uh, the rising returns to, to education. That is, the payoff to a college education has gotten larger over the last last fifty years or so, hmm. uh, and that accounts for some of the some of the takeoff in income inequality. So whether or not you can get access to the to the schooling uh, that has such payoff is, is going to be a big determinant of where you end up.
0: Is that true across the board in every state in the U.S., or is it more drastic in, in certain states? That's a good question. I'm not aware of the evidence on that. Uh, we do know that place matters dramatically
1: in terms of the amount of mobility that one can expect. And th- this is the work that, in particular, Raj Chetty, who's, who's my new colleague here at Stanford, is is Justly, so so famous for for for, for delivering, he used IRS uh, tax data uh, to show that children who are born into, into 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 some neighborhoods have much more opportunity than children born in, born into others. Um, so yeah,
0: place matters uh, quite dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. As as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, in in the climate where we find ourselves, there's a Republican debate going on tonight. Uh, who knows if, if income inequality will will be will be discussed during that conversation, but given that we 're in sort of a, a, an election climate in, in the u s uh, how do you make of the phenomenon of someone like Bernie Sanders rising to prominence and or at least some degree of popularity? Do you attribute that to his emphasis on economic justice or or to other factors? I think that has to be part of the story. Uh, I think one of the the big changes of, say, the last 15 to
1: 20 years is not just that folks in the U.S. are increasingly aware of the takeoff in income inequality, but they're more likely to question how it came about, in particular to question the presumption that was once very common that it was simply those who were hard workers or – or or. Delivering a lot of marginal product, who 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 were driving this this takeoff in income inequality? I think there's increasingly a, a recognition that there's 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 lots of rent being collected, uh, uh, rent which could be understood as sweetheart heart deals, corruption, various perversions of the rules of the game that make it possible for those who have power to do well, hmm. uh, and that insofar as you have that kind of sensibility, a candidate like Sanders is gonna is gonna be attractive to you. Hmm.
0: I believe in, in doing a little research on, on the work that you've written, it, in, in terms of just a time frame of the explosion of the, the wealth inequality in the U.S., it's generally, I, I think, marked at roughly 30 years ago is the, the, the beginning of the ballooning of the uh, wealth inequality. And correct me if, if, that, if, that, if that statistic is off by a bit, but what is, the, what is the story there? How did we get to where we are now? Um, and what are the specifics of the modern wealth inequality that we see in the U.S.?
1: Well, I think we know a lot about what drove the takeoff, but there are nonetheless two, I would say, competing sensibilities in, in understanding those basic facts that are, that are still in play. And, and, and so let, let me lay out mm-hmm. those two. And, and, and one story uh, simply emphasizes, as I already discussed, the rising returns to, to, to schooling and, and focuses on those rising returns in understanding the takeoff and income inequality. But there's a second sensibility that's not inconsistent with that one, but that focuses instead, as, as, uh, as I already discussed, on, on various ways in which the rules of the game aren't fairly set up and mm-hmm. that they privilege certain groups. And some of the takeoff in income inequality can be attributed to the rise of what might be termed rent. So one example would be the rent that accrues to those folks, like myself, who had lots of advantages. Uh, in accessing high quality primary and secondary schooling and then going on to college and reaping the benefits that college can 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 deliver. Now, not everyone had those opportunities. So in effect, I'm protected from competition mm-hmm. from all those children who were born into poor poorer neighborhoods who didn't have those opportunities, couldn't go to college, and have reduced therefore the supply of folks who have a college degree. Mm-hmm. Great for me, great for anyone who went to college, because it reduces the supply of, of folks who, who had that degree. And then Increases the returns mm-hmm. that you secure by virtue of having that degree. You're you're protected from competition, uh, and that drives up your returns. That could be seen as a type of rent, um, uh, because it's not the returns that would arise if if everyone had access to college in a free and open competition of the sort that this country is supposed to deliver. Rather, it's the returns that arise when there's when there's blockages uh, that that prevent some people uh, from from from. From accessing college. Mm. So that's a story that, that talks about how inequality of opportunity is generating inequality of outcome. Uh, and it's just one example of the way in which in which you can understand the takeoff in income inequality. It's a type of rent. Mm. So it's not enough just to say there are rising returns to education. That's true. Mm-hmm. But you also have to appreciate why there are rising returns and how that might arise in part at least from, from unequal opportunities to access education. Mm-hmm.
0: In, when you look at at other countries in the world do you do you look at um some specific nations that that are dealing with wealth inequality uh fairly in your mind and and if so what what are they doing that that we aren't
1: that's a great question um so one big difference between the US case and most other well-off countries is that we engage in far less redistribution than those countries do. Uh, and and that accounts for one reason why there's much more inequality in the U.S. in disposable income than is the case in other countries. We just redistribute less. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a mistake to think that that's the only difference. It is a difference. Mm-hmm. It's an important difference, but not the only difference. What's also different between the U.S. case and that of other many other well-off countries is that the size of the paychecks that we bring home is much di- more different than is the case in other countries. So the market is generating a lot more inequality in the U.S. than in other countries. Uh, and I would attribute that in part, at least, to to these various institutions that allow for rent to be collected. Mm. So we have this giant rent-generating machine going on in the U.S. Uh, that arises in part because we don't have these equalities of opportunity at all sorts of places throughout the labor market that, that then generates rent of various sorts and, and, and creates paychecks of different sizes. Uh, so it's not as if it's fair and open competition that's mm-hmm. generating this inequality uh, within the labor market. Rather, it's, it's that we have a whole host of institutions in play that, 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 that prevent opportunities from being equally distributed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a very special type of labor market, mm-hmm. a very special type of labor market, I would argue. Now, this is, this is hardly established. Uh, I think we have a lot of work to be done in, in showing exactly how, how rent is being collected and generated at various places in the labor market. I've given you a few examples, uh, but this is a place where more research has to be done. But that's my my hypothesis, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And so the upshot, though, is that we have two paths to take. We can engage in more redistribution, and surely we should. But we also we also should take seriously the task of fixing our labor market institutions so that they – they don't generate
0: so much rent. One of the things I think that, in in listening to interviews of Bernie Sanders when he when he speaks about these issues, that you know his uh, his assault on the unfairness of the system right now is generally not even of people making six figures or five hundred thousand dollars a year. He seems to direct a lot of his attention to. Millionaires and even even more multimillionaires and billionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can, what what are the details of just how much money that very small percentage? I think he usually points to the point one percent of the U.S. Uh, having a enormous amount of wealth. If you if you know, what are those statistics and and how many people are there in that upper echelon?
1: I've learned long ago that an attempt to, to rehearse statistics off the top of my head is is bound to go wrong. So I'm not going to try uh, without looking at the data. And, and I don't have them right at hand now. Um, but he's right to say we're a very special country uh, uh, in, in terms of the amount of, of income inequality and wealth inequality that, 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 that that's in play here. We're very, very special.
0: Yeah. And how do people get into that upper... Uh, that upper 0.1 percent. I mean, is it just that once you amass enough capital, the system is is arranged as such that there's just almost an inevitable continuous return on having those resources? Yeah. Well, one thing we should, I think, that should be exposed to scrutiny is the extent
1: to which we should allow for for wealth to be transmitted directly from one generation to the next. And you might well say that there's nothing within. Conventional American sensibilities that that, that would suggest that, that that should be the case. Everyone is supposed to start at the same place in mm-hmm. this in this great race to get mm-hmm. ahead. Uh, and transferring wealth directly from one generation to the next is simply a perversion of that kind of commitment. Mm-hmm. If we really lived up to what we what we what we profess to 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 to, to commit to, we, we we would we would indeed have everyone starting off at the same place and say. You know, and say, "Okay, have at it." Mm-hmm. Everyone's everyone's got the same the same opportunities. Let's see who prevails. But instead, we we explicitly allow for for children born into wealth to to to, to, to benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I think I think I think it's it's time to have an open discussion about whether or not that's the kind of labor market and and economic system that, that, that we wanna we wanna commit to. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem consistent with with. Uh, with our most fundamental sensibilities. And you know, there have been times in American history in the past when our practices don't align well with our principles that we've said, okay, we're actually and it's a pretty amazing thing, right? We're actually gonna to commit to our principles, we're gonna adjust our our institutions, they're they're perfectible institutions, they're human creations, and we're gonna we're gonna realign them to, to to live up to our most profound commitments. I think it's time to do that again. Mm-hmm.
0: And it seems like the, the services uh, and the vision that he has for how American, America can change and, and should change and the services that he, he hopes that uh, he thinks should be provided to every citizen, free health care, uh, free tuition at public universities, uh, et cetera, um, you know, he's viewed and he is a self-professed democratic socialist, uh, he's viewed as a radical, And I'm wondering if uh, there are other examples that uh, in your research of of other American figures that were either very popular or at some point were uh, potential uh, either presidential candidates or uh, otherwise uh, influential or or powerful political figures in in U.S. history. Well, it's kind of fascinating because
1: many of those principles and commitments that we once thought of as radical are now seen as mainstream. And so, there's on one hand this drift to principles that were once seen as leftist, and now we've embraced them and built them into our economic institutions, and they're seen as 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 as, 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 as mainstream. But on the other hand, we've had more recently, uh, in many ways, a rightward drift in which those sorts of sensibilities that were once seen as extreme right wing sensibilities have become. Become become more mainstream. So mm-hmm. so there's two kind of counterbalancing mm-hmm. processes at work over the course of American history mm-hmm. that, are, that are quite fascinating.
0: Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people point to FDR as as someone that you know is a very popular historical president, but would would today uh, seem fairly similar to some of those uh, in terms of principles and um, uh, ideas that Bernie Sanders seems to be promoting. Uh, he did promote. So what 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 changed in, in the U.S.? It, w- is it simply that at that time people were so destitute because of what had happened in the crash that they were willing to reconsider their general economic philosophy for the way America should look, or, or was it something else? Well, that's a great question. I, you know,
1: I, I couldn't claim to have the answer. But I do think that, that the Great Recession was, was, was uh, a, a fairly profound event mm. and did lead to some rethinking mm. about about our economic system now it seems at this point in time that the rethinking is not nearly as fundamental as was the case after the mm. after the, the, the earlier crash after the first Gilded Age right mm. that led to some pretty profound institutional changes mm-hmm. the new deal and beyond changes in the way in which we understand labor unions changes that really ushered in this new era of, of reduced income inequality uh, there's no evidence as yet that we're doing anything that profound. But one might say it's still early in the game yeah. uh, and that you can't rule out that ultimately we'll have those institutional changes of the same magnitude. But as yet, mm-hmm. we haven't gotten an institutional return from the Great Recession of the sort that we got out of the out of the Depression. Hmm.
0: I know the center that you work at here or the director of here at Stanford is, is in part about income inequality, but is also about poverty which is the other end of the story, right? Uh, uh, the opposite of the extreme amounts of wealth are just the uh, enormous numbers of, of Americans that are living, living in poverty. Um, what is the picture in 2015 in terms of the poverty levels within the U.S.? And um, if, if you could design uh, a change for how we deal with that problem, what, what would that look like?
1: so yeah we're a special country in terms of having extraordinary extraordinarily unequal uh, distribution of income and, and having and having a, a very small elite with command over large amounts of income but we're also special as you point out at the other end mm-hmm. uh, in that we we run a country that delivers more poverty than 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 most any of our well off uh, peer countries mm-hmm. so so we're special at both extremes uh, here in California, for example, we have the the highest uh, poverty rate across all the states in in, in the U.S. It's very high indeed, uh, and you know, yeah, we're we're special. We're mm-hmm. exceptionalist. The U.S. Mm-hmm. has long been been represented as exceptionalist, and we are. We are on poverty as well as as well as inequality. I can talk a bit if you'd like about mm-hmm. about how we might go about repairing that. Sure. Um, well, I think here again the problem is that we are mired in narrow-gauge institutional reform, very small stuff, stuff that doesn't appreciate the magnitude of the problem. And so the types of changes and interventions that we that we discuss are not at all at the right scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the first step is to recognize that we've got a problem in terms of scale. What is and the scale at, at present? So in, the, in, in California, we have... Uh, Nearly one in five people in poverty uh, if you measure it according to the supplemental poverty measure, um, it's a very high number mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so so yeah, so what do you do to get institutional reform at the at, at, at the right scale? Well, I think again, it makes good sense for a variety of reasons to deliver an anti-poverty program that's simply oriented toward equalizing opportunities to everyone. Uh, and so a good set of reforms would identify where opportunities are unequal and and then do what you need to do in order to equalize them. So first off, uh, access to, to health care and health practices is very unequally distributed. And so children who are born into poor families aren't going to have the same sort of uh, uh, healthy early beginning that, that kids for the middle class will have. And so you could, for example, ramp up even more than is already the case, ramp up home visiting programs mm-hmm. that, that provide information, basic, simple, but very important information on healthy practices mm-hmm. that will mean that the capacities of, 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 of children born into poverty will be more nearly equal those born into in, in, into 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 middle class households. So what we know now is that those early years are very very important. Mm-hmm. And so just a simple information intervention like home visiting programs uh, can can equalize equalize opportunities to just have mm-hmm. a, a healthy beginning. That would be step one. That's the first place at which the opportunities are unequal. But then you need to hand off to to earlier childhood education. We know too that it's very important. The evidence isn't completely clear but it's pretty strong that access to high quality early childhood education uh, uh, can have a big payoff and we know that if you're born into a middle class household you're going to have great early childhood education and if you're born into a poor household you're not going to have mm-hmm. that same sort of opportunity so we've got to deliver that mm-hmm. so that's step two uh, and then then you're going to have to equalize access to high quality primary and secondary schooling we know that's very unequally distributed It's another place where the le- playing field isn't level mm-hmm. we've got to level it mm-hmm. Uh, and and so you know we can go on mm-hmm. but it, but at each step of the way there are deeply unequal opportunities and so if we rectify those uh we deliver the same opportunities to all children it's going to be big reforms but it would be a big payoff because because
0: we would reduce poverty in a in a, in a really substantial way mm-hmm. when we when we talk about people being at the at the poverty level and I, I know that that's spoken about in in presidential years what exactly does that mean? What what is what is the uh the cutoff for someone living living under the poverty level?
1: Another number question. I'll do my best. I think roughly for a two-parent, two-child family in a typical in a typical uh county in 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 California it'd be around 20 to 23,000. Uh so the supplemental Household poverty measure, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so the supplemental poverty measure, which many people think is the best poverty measure, takes into account differences in the cost of living mm-hmm. across counties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why it would vary mm-hmm. from the low to, to mid-20s, um, depending on where you live and what kind of, in particular, housing costs, but other costs of living differences that you're going to encounter. I mean, you think about it. If you're poor in this area, you basically have a big, big choice to make. You can live somewhere on the peninsula where there's... Fair number of jobs mm-hmm. for poor people. Um, uh, people in Palo Alto need those to tend their gardens, take care of their children, run the, the, the service operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so if you make that, you know, if you if you want to get those jobs, uh, you can live far away, maybe you know a two hour commute each way where housing costs are low. Uh, but then you're going to have maybe four hours a day less to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can either live far away and work maybe four hours a day less, or you can live close in, pay a lot more in housing, but be able to work more hours. And so that's 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 the rationale for having a poverty measure that takes into account, say, housing costs. Hmm. There is that trade-off.
0: Given given the the numbers, right? If it, if it is one in five Americans are living at or near or below the poverty line, well, Californians in Cal- California, California, yeah. in California, yeah. uh, but you know tens of millions of Americans that are are in that situation. What do you make of the uh, lack of general grassroots political activism for changing the economic structure of the way that America fundamentally works? Another
1: very tough question. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is a misunderstanding of how poverty is generated, and that a mis a a, a, a failure to appreciate that. One very important reason, not the only reason, mm-hmm. but one very important reason why we have so much poverty in California is that we don't have equal opportunities to get ahead mm-hmm. that if you 're born into a poor into a poor family in a poor neighborhood there's systematic restriction of opportunities at every step of the way, mm-hmm. and that means that a child born into poverty has a, a much elevated chance of him or herself ending up in poverty, and that if we could just get rid of those inequalities of opportunity, we would go a long way. To reducing mm-hmm. poverty. But people don't see poverty in those terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they don't understand that it arises to the extent that it does from unequal opportunities. If they did appreciate that, my view is that they would commit much more profoundly to to, to doing what's necessary to, to reducing poverty. But rather they, they see poverty as a consequence of, 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 of behaviors that for which they want they they blame the, mm-hmm. the individuals undertaking those behaviors.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that a part of also a part of the American fabric that that uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps working hard is is just so difficult for it's it's hard for Americans to shake themselves out of that mindset that it's 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 more difficult to implement the sort of uh, more socialistic tendencies than than we see in Western Europe well I would say you know it's not about it's not about implementing socialistic
1: programs and reforms it's actually implementing programs and reforms that are 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 pretty mainstream commitments in the U.S. The commitment to equal opportunity Mm -hmm. is as mainstream as it gets. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not socialism, at Mm -hmm. least as it's conventionally understood. Uh, It's just doing what we think is supposed to be done in the context of of some of our most profound mainstream commitments to equal opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not that we're asking people to do something that's that's inconsistent with standard-issue American sensibilities. We're asking people to do what... They conventionally
0: mm-hmm. believe is part of what this country should be doing. Mm-hmm. It's just not appreciated that we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last question I want to ask you, and I, I alluded to this a little while ago. If 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 you could, if you were king for a week, or you know, you had uh, you were president, um, what what are the what are the the moves you would make? Um, and maybe it is primarily in, in the <laughs> education realm. Um, maybe it's increasing taxes in some form. What are, the, what are the two or three things immediately off the bat that if you, with a stroke of a pen, could change them, you would do to decrease the, the inequality of, of the U.S.? I like this idea. <laughs> King for a day. Um, I would
1: say we should step back and test all of our labor market, schooling, and other institutions again with a single litmus test. The single litmus test is, is it delivering equal opportunity to all children? And if it is wonderful. Mm-hmm. If it's not, let's do what's necessary to, to ensure that it lives up to, 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 that, to that commitment. And so just step back. We get used to our institutions. We take them for granted. We, we think they're, they're, they're inevitable and immutable and mm-hmm. unchangeable. But there's nothing more American at the end of the day than, than the view that, that, that we can mm-hmm. create our institutions. That's the American dream. And so we should test and measure every institution we have against that, that single very, very important test. Uh, That's what
0: I did. Mm -hmm. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.